Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. First reading is from Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 uh, through uh, chapter 34, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up in Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The second passage is from Exodus 34:29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is God's word. 
encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus 33 and 34. And let's pray as we look together at God's Word. Lord, as we join Moses on the rock this morning, as if we're joining him once again at the burning bush, there's a sense that this passage before us is holy ground. You are revealing yourself in a particularly striking way here, God. And so we pray more than anything this morning that your spirit would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. May our attention be caught up with you, God. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Passion for God is easily confused with passion for the things that God gives us. Think about that. It's easy to confuse those two because God often gives us very good things. Life, breath, family, friends, work. Money, shelter, food. I mean, there's all sorts of earthly goods that come from God's hand. And we're happy for those things. And so we could be passionate about them. Or more than that, there are many spiritually good things that come from God's hand. Like forgiveness, new life, adoption into his family, the presence of his spirit, the promise of heaven. It's easy to confuse our passion for those good things, with our passion for God himself. But it's the difference between being excited about a gift and being excited about the one who gave you that gift. And perhaps more than any other passage in this book, our story this morning shows us that as good as salvation is, as Israel's salvation from from slavery in Egypt or our salvation from sin and death as good and life-giving and freeing and joyful as that is, our salvation is a gift designed to fuel our passion for the giver. In other words, salvation is not the end of the Christian life. It is a means to an end. The end is beholding the glory of the Lord. That's the goal. And we see that in our conversation uh, before us between Moses and the Lord. We're actually jumping into the middle of a conversation that's already been going on. uh, That began in our passage last week, which Naveen walked us through. Uh, If you've been with us through our series in Exodus, or if you've read the book of Exodus before, you'll remember that after rescuing Israel from Egypt and bringing them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, the Lord made a covenant with them. He was going to be their God and they would be his people. And uh, then he gave them his law as stipulations of that covenant, the, the terms. Then he invited Moses up onto Mount Sinai that he might give him instructions for building a tabernacle, a kind of portable tent where God would dwell in a special way with his people as they made their way through the wilderness toward Canaan, which he had promised them. 
But while Moses was up on that mountain, the people of Israel got a little impatient, a little scared, and decided to take matters into their own hands. So they went to Aaron, whom Moses had left in charge, and they said, we don't know where this Moses character's gone, uh, but we want you to make us a god. We want you to make an image of Yahweh so that we know whether he's in the camp with us or not. They wanted to keep tabs on God. And so Aaron does it, and Israel worships this golden calf, which was a complete rebellion of the covenant they had just agreed to. And so Israel breaks the terms of the covenant, which Moses symbolizes when he comes down and smashes the tablets at the foot of the mountain. As if to say, the deal is off. And when you make a, a, a business deal or, or you uh, sign a contract to buy a house or something, there are terms or stipulations to that contract. You're going to put this much money in escrow and they're going to fix these things on the house before closing day. And if somebody doesn't do one of those things, the contract can be voided. The deal called off. Well, Israel breaks the terms of their covenant. And at the end of chapter 32, it looks like the deal is off. God had saved his people that he might be with them and dwell in their midst. And now all of that is off the table. He is no longer going with them into Sinai, or excuse me, into Canaan. He's going to keep his promise to Abraham and send them there. But no law, no tabernacle, no covenant, no God. That's where things stand at the end of chapter 32. And that's what Moses intercedes to restore in chapter 33. As Naveen walked uh, us through that story last week, we saw how Moses, his intercession was very successful. God restores his presence. He promises to go with his people, uh, reminding us that, that God himself is the greatest blessing that his people can have, that, that the greatest enjoyments we can have of him are the assurance of his presence and his nearness and concern and favor. And so we're picking up right in the middle of that conversation now. In verse 17, and as we pick up the conversation there, God affirms again that Moses has found favor in in God's sight, that he's going to do all that he has spoken to him. And you would think that upon hearing that, uh, that after such incredible success, interceding for Israel, appealing to God, don't abandon your people, stay with us, go with us, and God says, I'm going to do it. You would think that on receiving that affirmation, Moses would take off down the mountain to go tell Israel the good news. The deal's back on the table. Salvation has been restored. I mean, literally, the greatest potential disaster in all of Israel's history was just avoided. That God would disown them and no longer be with them. That disaster was just avoided. So, so mission accomplished, right? This is what Moses went up on the mountain to, to secure, and, and, and God has granted it. But Moses doesn't charge down the mountain. He doesn't just get back to work leading the people into the promised land. Instead, he lingers on the mountain. But now he transitions from interceding for Israel 
to instead making a rather personal request, a bold request. He says in verse 18, show me your glory. Show me your glory. What a strange request. What, what is Moses asking here? Well, we often talk about the glory of God, right? That, that's not an uncommon phrase in Christian lingo. We want to give God glory. We pray that God would be glorified during our service. We want to do all things for the glory of God. But what in the world are we actually talking about when we talk about the glory of the Lord? Uh, the most helpful definition i found is that God's glory is his worthy reputation. It's his worthy reputation. It's all that is good and praiseworthy about him. Uh, God himself kind of defines it that way in his response to Moses. He says, Moses asks, show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So it's everything that's good and praiseworthy and glorious about God, which is not that different from how we use it in other contexts. So you, know, you can talk about the glory of the Red Sox or the glory of Boston or the glory of our school or our team or our choir or whatever it is. What are you talking about when you use that phrase? You're talking about all that makes that choir or that team or that town special, all that's praiseworthy, all that's honorable, admirable about it, what sets it apart. And so the glory of God is everything that is praiseworthy about him. And to give glory to God is to acknowledge and express and magnify that reputation, to ascribe to him the glory that he deserves. So Moses wants to see God's glory, his beauty, his radiance, his power. But what's most striking about his request here, at this part of the story, is what it teaches us about the goal of salvation, to behold the glory of God, to be more passionate about God himself than what God gives us. Again, that distinction can be hard to see, but it's the difference, say, on Christmas morning when you unwrap a present and find the gift of your dreams inside, between grabbing that gift and running off to play with it immediately versus running immediately to your parents and throwing your arms around them in love and gratitude for the gift. One delights in the gift. The other sees the goodness of the gift is but a reflection of the goodness of the one who gave it. Israel received a gift from God on that mountain, an incredible gift, a renewed covenant, forgiveness, peace, rest, the renewed promise of God's presence. But upon receiving that gift, Moses doesn't run off to play with it or go celebrate it or Instagram it or something like that. He turns his attention instead to the giver, to God, because God is the real treasure. God is the prize. Not what he does for Israel, but God himself. Salvation is not the end. It is a means to the end of beholding the glory of God. 
And that's what Moses wants to see. God in all of his goodness, all of his greatness and beauty. This is a, a bold request. And God somewhat surprisingly responds uh, positively to his request. He says, yes, I will show you my glory. But in his response, there are four things that come into focus for understanding and beholding the glory of God. And I want us to see each of these as we kind of join Moses in seeking to see what is so good and beautiful and great about our Lord. So first, God reveals his glory by his grace. God reveals his glory by his grace. God does not owe a positive answer to Moses. It's only because Moses has found favor in God's sight that he's bold enough to ask and that God is kind enough to answer. And when you realize this phrase that's used four or five times in this chapter, that Moses found favor in God's sight, if I found favor in your sight, when you realize the word for favor there is the Hebrew word for grace, that adds a weight of significance to what Moses is receiving. You know, when I was in college, I was sitting in a coffee shop one day, just kind of studying or doing something, I don't remember, uh, and I noticed a couple of guys kind of walking around talking to people, and I realized that one of them had a jacket on that said Third Day on it, which is a Christian band, Third Day, and it turns out this was like the drummer and the bassist of this band. They are at a concert in town the next night, and they were walking around giving away backstage passes to their concert. Uh, my roommate and I happened to acquire a backstage pass in that coffee shop, which was kind of cool. Now, not just anybody can waltz backstage during a concert. Unless you're Nancy Northgraves and you know all the bands by names, it just doesn't... Not anybody can do that. You have to have a pass. Nor can you just walk up to the ticket booth and demand a backstage pass. Nobody has a right to a backstage pass. And it wasn't like me and my roommate did anything to deserve it. We were invited backstage simply because the band members chose to invite us backstage. We were there by their grace. In the same way, it is only God's grace, His undeserved favor for sinners, that it is only by that grace that He reveals His glory. No one has a claim on God or the right to demand to see his glory. Not even Moses, whom he calls his friend. Rather, as God says in chapter 33, verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So only God decides who he's going to extend his favor to. No one is worthy to claim that for themselves or entitled to demand it. It is only by his grace that he makes his beauty known. So that's the first thing that comes into focus. Second, God conceals the fullness of his glory because it's too radiant to behold. God conceals the fullness of his glory because it is too radiant to behold. So he answers Moses positively, yes, I will show you my glory, but notice that he puts a limitation on what he's going to allow Moses to see. 
Chapter 33, 19 again. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But, verse 20, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God's going to show Moses his glory, but not all of it. Because not even Moses, Moses who was not complicit in Israel's idolatry, he was in God's presence on the mountain when all that tomfoolery was happening. Uh, Moses, not even Moses, who's found favor in God's sight. Even Moses is far too inferior and impure to be, to be able to behold the unbridled glory of God without being consumed by his holiness. Even Moses is unfit. And we're reminded here that, that the presence and glory of God is nothing to be trifled with. It's nothing to be trifled with. This is a big deal. That God in his moral perfection and sovereign majesty is above us and beyond us to such an extent, extent that no sinner can enter his presence and live. That's how holy he is. And so whatever Moses is allowed to see of his glory, it's but a fraction, but a fraction of his true majesty and beauty. It's kind of like watching a solar eclipse. Um, On August 21st this summer, there's like this big deal that some of my astronomy nerd friends have told me about, that there's this solar eclipse that's going to cross. David, I see you. Uh, He's got like reservations to go see it somewhere. Uh, there's this solar eclipse that's going to cross, you know, the United States. My hometown actually happens to be in the path, which is kind of cool, of the total eclipse. Like, there's this 70-mile band where, for two and a half minutes, the sun will be will completely disappear in the middle of the day. Um, really kind of cool. But as you learn in elementary school, you're not supposed to look directly at the sun, even to watch a solar eclipse. Uh, you have to have special glasses or or use a pinhole projector or something like that because the the sun is simply too bright to look at and behold with the naked eye it will burn the back of your retina if you try and so god makes a pinhole projector of sorts for moses he he's going to hide him in the cleft of the rock so that he'll be able to to see the glory but not be consumed by it not be injured by it He says in verse 21, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God conceals the fullness of his glory because it is too brilliant and holy and radiant to behold. So what does he reveal of his glory then? Well, third, God reveals his glory in his greatness and his grace. He reveals his glory in his greatness and his grace. And throughout Scripture, we always see those two traveling together. That God is great and gracious. He's majestic and merciful. He's holy and loving at the same time. And he reveals, as he reveals his glory here to Moses, it's his greatness and his grace that he puts on display. 
But what's interesting is that while Moses asks to see God's glory, it's what he hears that really communicates the beauty and radiance of God's reputation. Specifically, the proclamation of God's name. God said, I'm going to pass, I'll have my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name, the Lord. God's glory is bound up in his name, which if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. If you muddy somebody's name, you're ruining their reputation. If you praise somebody's name, you are extolling their reputation. And so God's name and glory are bound together such that he reveals his glory by proclaiming his name. The same name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the the same name by which he made himself known to Israel in the Exodus and to Egypt in judging them in the Exodus. The name that he's now going to define in terms of his greatness and his glory, his greatness and his grace. And so look again at chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. These are some of the most foundational words in all of Scripture. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, if you look at that description of God's name, there are seven attributes that he uses to proclaim his name, seven character qualities that express his unparalleled majesty, his greatness and his grace. And the first six of the seven, the first six all reveal his grace. They all reveal his grace. This past spring, um, when we were going through our Life Explored course, um, part of that course is there are different stories that you watch and kind of discuss. And one of those stories was about uh, a geisha in the Meiji period of Japan. A geisha is a traditional hostess who uh, entertains men with conversation and dance and song, and sometimes that bleeds over into prostitution. Uh, and this short film shows a geisha whose, whose client was beginning to kind of try to force himself upon her. And you could see she's uncomfortable with it. And all of a sudden, it's interrupted because what appears to be another client steps in and throws the man off. Only you realize shortly it's not another client. It's the woman's husband who's tracked her down in order to rescue her. And because of his actions, he is beaten by the owners of the establishment. He's tortured right in front of his wife until he can produce the money to actually buy her out of the business. And he does that. He buys her out of this business. He brings her home to her family, to her two young kids, They're reunited, they eat dinner together, they go to bed, he wakes up the next morning, and she's gone. She's gone back to the business. What does the guy do? His kids bring him his hat, he gets on his horse, 
and he goes after her again. That is grace. Not just to be willing to take her back, but to pursue her day after day. And there is glory in that kind of grace. Now, take that vignette example and multiply it by infinity and you begin to scratch the surface of the majesty of God's grace. His merciful compassion to those who are hurting and in need. His gracious favor to those who actually deserve His wrath. His patience toward His unruly children. His steadfast, loyal love that remains unbroken even when we break our side of the covenant. His faithfulness to His Word. His forgiveness of our sin. And all of this you see, not just proclaimed, but demonstrated in this story, in the rest of chapter 34, where God renews the covenant with Israel, the covenant that that they broke and scorned. God renews it with them. He reiterates His promise to be with them and to be their God and to go with them into the land. Not because they deserve it, but because of His grace. God shows mercy and grace and patience and loyal love and faithfulness and forgiveness. This is His glory. He reveals His glory and His grace. But the seventh attribute attribute in the description of His name also displays His glory. And this one points to His greatness. His justice and holiness. He will by no means clear the guilty. There's no glory in turning a blind eye to evil and injustice in this world. It's not glorious for God to be gracious alone. He must also be great in seeing and condemning and addressing evil and sin. And as much as the idea of God's judgment makes many of us uncomfortable We know this is true. I mean, in the world of social media today, if you don't express outrage immediately over whatever injustice happened an hour ago, you are a callous, cold-hearted person. I mean, it's just immediate. Condemnation must come down. So we get that in a broken world. How much more important is it for an all-knowing and all-powerful God to be great in his justice and holiness. God does not overlook this. He promises to deal with it. Not always when we want him to, but he will deal with it. For as long as it takes, as long as that sin takes root in a household, to the third and the fourth generation, he will deal with it. And he is glorious in doing so. God reveals his glory in his greatness and in his grace. And and this revelation of his glory that Moses hears and sees, this becomes a fixture to Israel's faith. Uh, Not so much what Moses sees, again, but what he hears. Notice how Moses doesn't pick up a chisel or a paintbrush or something 
to draw a picture of the back of God's head to memorialize his experience. The first thing he does is fall down and worship. That's the first and proper thing he does. But at some point, he writes it down. He writes down what he heard proclaimed. And what he heard proclaimed, verses 6 and 7, are quoted verbatim no fewer than nine times in the Old Testament. These are the verses Israel goes back to when they're trying to figure out and make sense of God. When they're rejoicing in who God is, these are the verses they go back to in the Psalms and in Jeremiah and in Numbers and Joel and Jonah even. It's all over the place because this is a climactic revelation of Yahweh, of who God is. He reveals his glory in both his greatness and his grace. The fourth observation about beholding God's glory comes at the end of our passage. How God's revealed glory is reflected in his people. God's revealed glory is reflected in his people. When Moses, having spent time in the presence of God, when he comes down from the mountain, he doesn't realize that his face is actually shining with light from being in the presence of God, which is kind of creepy. Uh, At least the Israelites and Aaron thought so. They were really weirded out and didn't have a category for that and weren't sure what to do with it. Understandable. Uh, But it makes sense when you think about it. God's glory, as it were, rubs off on his people. When we behold it, we're affected by it. Uh, To make a weak analogy, uh, you know, when you go to a classical music concert, I don't know if you've ever noticed, when you walk out, you just kind of feel more refined at the end of it, right? Your posture is a little bit straighter. You've had this experience. It's as if, like, the virtue of this concert is now rubbed off on you in some way. Or you go to a lecture, and you walk out feeling smarter. Not because you contributed anything to the lecture, but just because you were there taking it in. And so, Being in the presence of God, it affects his people. And not just when Moses was on the mountain. Whenever he went into the presence of God, um, his face shone. And And it made the people so uncomfortable that he had to wear a veil over his face when he wasn't in the presence of God. You cannot behold the glory of the Lord without being affected by it. But as you take this story of God revealing his glory to his people. And you you follow the trajectory of that throughout Scripture. There's one more point that we need to make. And that's that God reveals the fullness of his glory through his Son, Jesus Christ. God reveals the fullness of his glory through his Son, Jesus Christ. What was concealed on the mountain is ultimately revealed in Jesus. God's greatness and grace come together in his life, death, and resurrection. Consider a few verses. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18. And the word became flesh, the word referring here to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. God reveals His glory through His Son. Hebrews 1, verses 3 through 4. 
He, again, referring to Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What was concealed on the mountain is revealed in Jesus. And not just in his life of moral perfection and unmatched compassion. Everything Jesus did revealed the glory of God. But the preeminent expression of that glory happens on the cross. Where Christ took our sin and made it his sin so that he might take his righteousness and attribute it, ascribe it, account it to us. Where he demonstrates on the cross both the greatness of God in dealing justly with sin and the grace of God in dealing mercifully with sinners. The glory of God in full display on the cross. It is no wonder that God shares his name with Jesus. Remember, God's glory is bound up in his name. He, he reveals his glory by proclaiming his name. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 2. Because Jesus humbled himself and took on human flesh and took the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, Philippians 2.9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I can only think of one name that qualifies for that, right? The name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. To the glory of God the Father. The word translated Lord there. Paul is quoting Isaiah 45 when he says every name will... Uh, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's quoting Isaiah 5, 45. And in, in Isaiah 45, the name Lord there is the proper name of God, Yahweh. God shares his name with Jesus because Jesus is the display of his full glory. And so, just as beholding God's glory affects Moses, so it affects us. But, and here's the amazing thing, we no longer need a veil. Because the covenant that God has made with us through Christ is even greater than his covenant with Israel. We have a boldness to behold and reflect God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.12. Since we have such a hope, a hope in this covenant in Christ, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what is being brought to an end. That glory faded over time. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So not only does Christ make known to us the glory of the Lord, He transforms us to reflect that glory as we behold Him. As we spend time sitting at His feet, as we spend time serving Him, honoring Him, glorifying Him, we are changed increasingly to reflect His image of glory. And that, that is the reason we are saved. Not just because of what we get out of it. Not just because we're desperate and helpless, though we are. Not just because it's the absolute best thing for us, though it is. Salvation is a gift meant to draw our attention to the giver. It is the means to the end of beholding, of savoring, of delighting ourselves in and magnifying the glory of God. And so the question I want us to reflect on this morning. When God gives me something good, how do I respond? When God gives me something good, how do I respond to that in my heart? Have I confused passion for God with passion for what he gives me? When he answers my prayer for something that I really need, do I simply run off and and play with it or put it to whatever use I had in mind? Or do I stop and marvel that the God of heaven heard my prayer and in his grace and compassion and loyal love, he sovereignly moved hearts and changed circumstances in order to answer my prayer? Do I marvel over that? When God delivers me from a trial, or from a difficulty, is my response simply relief that the trial is over. Now I can go on doing what I was doing before the crisis hit. Or do I run to God in worship for His grace and His greatness? Do I reorient my life to focus on what it should have been focusing on before, this this thing that now the crisis has gotten my attention over, that, that God... And his plan is what's most important. Another way of asking this question, do I have a man-centered view of salvation or a God-centered view of salvation? Have I made the Christian life and faith all about me where God becomes the means to the end of my dreams, my plans, my wants, my desires, my glory, Or is my life and faith a means to the end of His glory? A testimony of His greatness and mercy and grace. His loyal love and faithfulness and forgiveness. Is my purpose to reflect His image. This image in which I was made and into which I'm being transformed through Christ. From one degree of glory to another. Because, and and, and here's one of the most important things related to this. Not only does a God-centered view of salvation give him the glory he deserves, it also quiets my heart when his answer is no. When salvation is delayed. When trial and hardship endure. When a thousand cries for help 
go unanswered. If the point of salvation is to make my life better as I define better, I'm going to need to find a different God. But if salvation is about bringing glory to God and transforming my life increasingly into his glorious image, then there's something bigger at work here than me simply being rescued from hardship. Paul revels in this mystery of God's sovereignty and goodness in Romans 8.28 when he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But what does he mean by good here? It's being conformed to the image of his son, or as he puts it in verse 3, it's being glorified. It's being transformed to reflect God's glory. He works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified transforming us into the image of God's glory. And so salvation, it is the absolute best gift anybody can ever want or desire. It is the gift all of us should want to see received by everyone else. But salvation is ultimately about God's glory, not just our good. The means to the end of beholding the glory of God. And so the goal of being God's people or guarding God's presence is not to secure his blessing and benefit. It is to behold his glory. He is the treasure. Everything else will let you down. He is the treasure. And so as you seek and serve God, as you enjoy your salvation and rest in him and serve him and Rejoice in all of his benefits. May we never forget that the heart of our relationship, the end of our relationship, is beholding God. Seeing and savoring with unveiled face the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what we were made for. That is what we are saved for. That is the only thing that will give us lasting satisfaction. And that is what makes the most of God's glorious name. Let's pray. Lord, you are beautiful. What an understatement. There are no words to capture the true weight and breadth of your majesty and beauty and glory, of your holiness and mercy and grace. But Lord, may you take our feeble efforts, sanctify them with the blood of your Son and receive them to make much of your name because you deserve it, Lord. Thank you for making yourself known in your greatness and in your grace. And may we May our heart's greatest desire 
amid all the hundred million things running around in our heads and distracting our hearts, may our heart's greatest desire be nothing more than to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. May we find sweet satisfaction and may you receive the glory due your name. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing number 558, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling.